All right, well, it is Palm Sunday, a week away from Easter. Looking forward to that. But on the original Palm Sunday, Jesus was welcomed into Jerusalem by joyous crowds shouting, Lord, save us. They use the word Hosanna. It's an Aramaic word, but Hosanna means, Lord, save us now. And they waved palm branches while they shouted this, and those palm branches were symbols of Jewish nationalism. They were welcoming a king. But within the hours leading up to that historical event, Jesus told his disciples a very important parable. And the message of that parable is not only essential for them to understand in their context, but it's also quite essential for us to grasp and understand in our context as well as 21st century followers of Jesus. So on this Palm Sunday, some 2,000 years removed from the original one, I thought it was appropriate for us to turn to that very parable as we continue our series through the parables of Jesus that we've given the subtitle, Everyday Stories, Eternal Truth. Their excitement and expectations were high as the disciples traveled with Jesus to attend the Passover feast. So many questions raced through their minds. What would happen when Jesus reached Jerusalem? Would Jesus lead a military revolt against the occupying Roman oppressors? Would he finally restore the throne of King David in Jerusalem? Would the kingdom of God that he repeatedly taught about actually come in its fullness at that point? So many questions. They had already made the journey south from Galilee with the rest of the Passover pilgrims around Samaria in the Jordan River Valley. And had stopped to rest in Jericho at the house of a vertically challenged tax collector named Zacchaeus. The text in Luke chapter 19 doesn't tell us how long they stayed with Zacchaeus, but long enough to get some rest for the difficult journey ahead of them. Um, As you can see from this topographical map, um, the Mediterranean Sea looks higher than Jericho. You know why? It is. Jericho sits about 850 feet below sea level, right on the north end. You can't see it in the picture. It's off, off on the um, right-hand side there. But um, the dead, it sits on the north side of, of the Dead Sea. And it's called the Dead Sea for a reason, because water flows into it and doesn't flow out. Why? Because it's below sea level. It has nowhere to go. Okay? The Dead Sea actually sits almost 1,500 feet below sea level. But Jesus stopped there in Jericho to get some rest, likely because they had a a pretty arduous 20-mile uphill journey from Jericho to get to Jerusalem. Jerusalem sat at 2,500 feet, or sits still, at 2,500 feet above sea level. So this is quite a hike uphill over the course of 20 miles. They would have had plenty of time to think as they walked up that path. But Jesus knew their thoughts even before they thought them. And so he began to formulate a parable in his mind to to rearrange some misconceptions and also to take advantage of everyday surroundings to teach some eternal truth. Zacchaeus undoubtedly lived in a very nice neighborhood in Jericho. He wasn't just an ordinary tax collector. Scripture tells us that he was the chief tax collector. So he was the boss of all the other tax collectors. He got the biggest cut. 
In other words, he was probably the richest guy in town. So think gated community here, okay? When Jesus goes to Zacchaeus' house to rest. There was likely only one other house in town that was fancier than Zacchaeus' house, and that was the winter palace of King Herod himself. Here's an artist's rendition of, of that from what we can see of the, the footprint archaeologically. It was huge. It dwarfed the town. Perhaps Zacchaeus lived just down the street. <laughs> it's possible that Jesus was admiring the view of this very palace as he formulated the parable that he was about to tell to his disciples. This palace had been, been built by Herod the Great, who wasn't considered great because he was a great guy. In fact, he was the opposite. He was a horrible guy. Um, if, if you remember the massacre of the innocents that happened in, in, in and around Bethlehem, um, remember the Magi came from the east and asked, asked Herod the Great, where is, where is the king of the Jews to be born? And um, he was, they were seeking the king of the Jews, and he said, hey, report back to me after you find him. And um, they go to Bethlehem, visit Jesus, but then they, they're warned and dreamed to go somewhere else and not tell Herod, and, and they take off. But Herod, in his jealousy, um, he ordered the, the massacre of every boy two years of age and younger in and around Bethlehem, the massacre of the innocents. That's why, why um, Mary and Joseph fled with baby Jesus, or two-year-old Jesus probably at that point, fled with him to where? To Egypt. So he wasn't called great because of his character. He was called great simply because he built great things. And his winter palace in Jericho was indeed great, quite the sight to behold. After Herod's death, this palace was inherited by his son Archelaus. But it, he didn't come by it easily. There had been a dispute over Herod the Great's so Well, he changed it kind of at the last second. And so Archelaus had to go away to try to, try, had to travel all the way to Rome to meet with Caesar Augustus himself to be appointed as ruler over the region after Herod the Great died. But before Archelaus left town to be appointed as ruler, he suppressed a small uprising in Jerusalem during a Passover feast by proceeding to kill 3,000 Jewish pilgrims. Archelaus wasn't a great guy either. His father, Herod the Great, was brutal, but Archelaus was even more so. So when Archelaus traveled to Rome to be appointed as ruler, the Jewish leadership actually sent a delegation after him saying, hey, Caesar, we do not want this guy to be ruler over us. We don't want him to be our king. The petition of the Jewish citizens was ignored. Caesar did appoint Archelaus as tetrarch over Judea and Samaria. And when Archelaus returned, you can imagine that it did not go well for the citizens that had opposed him. So when Joseph and Mary uh, were making plans to return to Israel from Egypt after they had heard that Herod the Great had died, Matthew chapter 2, verse 22 tells us that they chose to settle instead in the region of Galilee, in Nazareth, instead of down in Judea. Why? To avoid where Archelaus was ruling. That's why they, why they, why they settled there. They did not want to be under the brutal jurisdiction of this guy. Galilee was instead under the jurisdiction of Antipas, um, Archelaus's brother, another son of Herod the Great. So this forms the historical backdrop of what we're about to hear 
in this parable, found in Luke chapter 19, verses 11 through 27. We call it the parable of the 10 minus, the parable of the 10 minus. Jesus was likely looking at Herod's winter palace in Jericho that Archelaus had lived in while he formulated this parable. And he told it either while he was still there at Zacchaeus' house in Jericho or after he and his disciples had just left or were leaving to head to Jerusalem. So if you have a Bible with you, go ahead and open it to Luke chapter 19. If not, the words will be on the screen behind me as we go along, beginning with verse 11. As they heard these things, he proceeded to tell a parable because he was near to Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. Remember the expectations of the disciples? They're thinking, okay, when we get to Jerusalem, some big stuff's going to happen. So right here out of the gate, here in verse 11, we learn why Jesus tells this parable. It's made perfectly clear, and there's two reasons. First reason is what? He was near Jerusalem, only a day's journey away. And second reason, what? His disciples thought that when they got to Jerusalem, the kingdom of God was going to come in its fullness. It was going to appear immediately. And this assumption the disciples had was well-founded. It was justified because for three years, Jesus had been teaching them. Jesus had been saying things like, the kingdom of God is near. The kingdom of God is in your midst. The kingdom of God is at hand. You know, today theologians have written thousands of pages on what the kingdom of God means, but... In the minds of the disciples who were very ordinary guys, blue-collar workers, everyday guys, it's safe to say that their understanding was, was fairly simple of what the kingdom of God was. They understood that this would be the time when everything wrong in the world would be made right. Everything broken would be made whole. Everything ugly would be made beautiful. Because why? Because Jesus was coming as king. He was going to usher in a kingdom of shalom, of human flourishing. The Messiah, King Jesus, was going to reign on an earthly throne in Jerusalem. That was their conception of the kingdom of God. And is it now time as we're going to approach Jerusalem for the Passover feast? Is this the time that the kingdom is going to come? And over the three years of Jesus' public ministry, they'd seen him do things in the name of God that they'd never seen happen before. People who couldn't see regained their sight. People who were paralyzed began to walk. People with incurable diseases were restored to health. Even people without breath came back to life. It hadn't been that much long earlier than this, maybe just about a month and a half, that Jesus was in the neighboring town of Bethany, and he raised Lazarus from the dead. Some incredible stuff is happening. The kingdom of God has got to be coming in its fullness, they thought. Surely the consummation of human history is at hand. So as the disciples approached Jerusalem for the Passover, they assumed the occupying Romans would be dethroned and a king like David, the Messiah, Jesus, would take their place and rule in Jerusalem. They assumed that those who perpetrated evil would be judged. Those lives broken by, by oppression would be restored. All of the ugliness in the world would be made beautiful. But instead of wearing a crown of jewels that week, Jesus would wear a crown of thorns. Instead of sitting on a throne, Jesus would hang on a cross. And this is precisely why Jesus tells this parable. It was so important for them to get, and it's so important for us to get as well. 
Jesus needed to recalibrate their expectations and reveal to them that he must first go away before coming back in a second advent as the king they were expecting to usher in the kingdom of God in its fullness. Let's read on in verse 12. He said, therefore, a nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. Calling ten, ten of his servants, he gave them ten minas and said to them, engage in business until I come. Verse 14, but his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. And time out, right here you see what a master teacher Jesus is, using the familiar to teach you about the unfamiliar. Because everyone listening to him tell this parable, what would they be thinking? Oh yeah, like Archelaus, that guy that lives in that pal- or lived in that palace over there, who had to go away to Rome to be appointed king by Caesar Augustus before coming back. And, and the Jewish leadership sent citizens after, after him to say, we don't want this guy. Okay, that we get this. This has happened before, just 30 years earlier. But just as Archelaus received the kingdom anyway, so too does the main figure in this parable. Verse 15, let's read on. When he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him, that he might know what they had gained by doing business. The first came before him, saying, Lord, your mina has made ten more. And he said to him, Well done, good servant. Because you have been faithful in a very little, you shall have authority over ten cities. And the second came, saying, Lord, your mina has made five minas. And he said to him, You are to be over five cities. Then another came saying, Lord, here is your mina, which I have kept laid away in a handkerchief. For I was afraid of you because you are a severe man. You take what you did not deposit and reap what you did not sow. And he said to him, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. You knew that I was a severe man taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you not put my money in the bank? And at my coming, I might have collected it with interest. He exposes what the guy says as a flimsy excuse, in other words. If you really believed what you just said to me, you would have done something different. Verse 24, and he said to those who stood by, take the mina from him and give it to the one who has ten minas. I tell you, you, I'm sorry, skipped ahead. Verse 25, and they said to him, Lord, he has ten minas. Verse 26, I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. But as for these enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. In our introduction to the parables, I warned about the dangers of over-allegorizing. You can't make a parable walk on all fours. Uh, But it's fairly safe to assume that the nobleman in this parable represents who? You can talk to me. Jesus. The nobleman represents Jesus. And this is a fairly safe assumption because the nobleman, hold that answer for the next question, okay? Um, This is a fairly safe assumption because of why Jesus tells this parable. Everyone around him is assuming he's going to be enthroned as king and usher in the kingdom of God in its fullness when he got to Jerusalem. 
So through this parable, Jesus is introducing for the first time to his disciples the concept that he's going to leave them for a little while before returning as the king they were expecting. He's introducing what we now call an inter-advent period, a time between two advents or two comings. In other words, like the nobleman in the parable, Jesus is going to go away for a while before coming again to establish his kingdom on earth, the kingdom of God in its fullness. The first advent or coming of Jesus, when do we celebrate that? Christmas time. We celebrate his first advent when Jesus was born of a virgin in Bethlehem. The second advent of Jesus is yet to come. We're still looking forward to this because when he ascended into heaven after his resurrection, he promised his original disciples that he would return. And he hasn't returned yet. So where does that put us right now? In the inter-advent period. Between the first coming and the second coming. Between the first advent and the second advent. That's where we live now as 21st century disciples. Jesus has gone away and trusted his business to his servants and will one day return. Now, if the nobleman in this parable represents Jesus, we need to ask ourselves who the other characters represent. I heard it over here. Who do the servants represent? The disciples. The disciples. There, you're right this time. Okay. It's also fairly safe to assume that the servants represent the disciples in this parable or followers of Jesus. And the opposing citizens, those who don't want the nobleman to be their king, represent unbelievers, those who reject Jesus as the Messiah. We know from the clear teaching of Scripture that on Judgment Day, when Jesus returns in his second advent, it is not going to go well for those who have rejected him as king over their lives. This is a hard truth. Apostle John writes in John 3.16, just two verses after the most famous verse in the Bible, which is, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. In John 3.18, and we can't divorce this from the other. It says this, whoever believes in him, Jesus is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only son. This is a hard truth, but there will be condemnation and eternal judgment for those who reject Jesus as king and Lord and savior over their lives. So now that we have the characters in the story figured out, we have to ask ourselves a couple additional questions. One, what on earth is a mina? And two, what do these minas represent that he entrusts to his servants, the nobleman in the story? In the parable, before he leaves, the nobleman calls 10 of his servants, gives them each a mina, and tells them, do business or engage in business with this until I get back. In that day, a mina was a measure of money equal to about three months' wages of a common worker's wages. So not an insignificant amount. This is something very valuable. And when the nobleman returns, we don't get a report from all ten of the servants. I don't know why. Maybe Jesus is just saving his breath for the uphill walk. (laughs) So he just cuts it to the chase and just records three of them in his parable. But um, two of the servants put the money to work and earn more. One gets a tenfold return, another gets a fivefold return, but a third totally disregards his master's orders, does nothing with what's entrusted to him, comes up with a flimsy excuse for his inaction, which is exposed as an excuse by the king, 
and then gets rebuked. So now we need to figure out what these minas represent. Because if the nobleman represents Jesus, and the servants in the story represent followers of Jesus, then we better know what's being entrusted to us as 21st century followers of Jesus in this inter-advent period that we're living in. So that we don't run the risk of not being called faithful when the king returns. So we need to figure this out and act accordingly. So let's put our detective hats on together this morning and and try to figure out what the minas in this story could possibly represent. Keeping in mind the three most important rules for interpreting parables. And what are those rules? Context. What's the second one? Context. What's the third one? Context. Okay, you've learned. I'm so proud. Option number one. Many have suggested that the minas in the parable refer to our God-given talents and or resources that Jesus wants us to use for kingdom purposes. And although this interpretation fits actually pretty well with a very similar parable that Jesus tells over in the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew chapter 25, it's called the parable of the talents, where differing amounts of money are entrusted to each servant, it doesn't fit so well in this parable because here minas are distributed evenly among 10 servants. And let's be honest with ourselves. We've all been given differing amounts of talents and resources. Brett Rutledge has much more musical ability than I do. I can sometimes take him in disc golf, but um, (laughs) with a guitar, no match. Molly O'Connor has been given more organizational skills than like 10 of us combined, okay? Preachers like Matt Chandler, David Platt, John Piper can communicate a lot gooder than I can. Some of us here have more material resources than others. So because the minas are distributed evenly to the servants in this parable, I think we can probably safely cross this option off the list of possible interpretations. So what other options are out there? What has been distributed evenly to all of us as followers of Jesus? Our minds might jump then to, well, salvation. We've, we've all been given salvation. We've, we've all been given the Holy Spirit, evenly. But if we go this interpretive route, things get a little dicey when we get to the implications of verses 24 and 26, when the nobleman is dealing with the servant who gives a flimsy excuse for doing nothing with his mina. What do we read there? Let's reread them. Verse 24, and he said to those who stood by, take the mina from him and give it to the one who has 10 minas. And they said to him, Lord, he has 10 minas. I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. Okay, if we go with this interpretive option of this is salvation of the Holy Spirit, um, this implies that the Holy Spirit or salvation can actually be taken away from a disciple or a servant of Jesus. And we, when we come to interpretive decisions like this in Scripture, we've got to interpret the unclear in light of what's clear other places in Scripture. Can a believer, a true believer in Jesus, lose their salvation or have the Holy Spirit taken away from them who's the deposit guaranteeing our inheritance in heaven? Good answer. Uh, I don't have time to take you to all the verses that, uh, and the passages of Scripture that teach that. But the answer is a firm no. Salvation cannot be taken away. No one can pluck us out of his hand. The Holy Spirit doesn't come and leave like like he did in the Old Testament. The Holy Spirit indwells believers permanently. 
as a deposit guaranteeing our eternal inheritance. So I think we can safely scratch this option off the list of potential things that the minas represent. So where does this leave us? What do we have left? Is there something that perhaps we've missed here that might help us interpret this parable? And at this point, a faithful, as a faithful interpreter of the parables that you've become, an important word that begins with C will be popping up in your head. Yeah, it begins with C, ends in on text. Everybody say it together. Context, good. I intentionally skipped over a detail right at the beginning of our text this morning that perhaps some of you caught, if you were listening carefully. Let's go back and reread the first verse, verse 11, and look at how it starts. How does it start? Say it with me out loud. As they heard these things, he proceeded to tell them a parable and so on. As they heard what things? Whenever you read something like that in the middle of a text, You can't just keep reading. You have to do what? You have to stop and go back and look at the context of what's going on. Because maybe what's going on and the things the disciples are hearing is actually important to interpreting what this parable means. So let's back up and look at the beginning of Luke chapter 19. If you have your Bibles open, you'll see that while Jesus... This, this is all happening while Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem for the Passover feast, and he stops in Jericho to, and um, meets Zacchaeus, who's climbed up in a sycamore tree and says, come down, I'm going to stay in your house today. I'm going to get a little rest in your house today. And Zacchaeus, the chief tax collector, is really the most notorious sinner in town. People are gasping that Jesus is going to eat with him, go to the house of such an a, um, infamous sinner, And the unexpected love of Jesus towards Zacchaeus so transforms him from the inside out that Zacchaeus, experiencing the love of Jesus, experiencing the grace of God towards him, a sinner, says to Jesus, look, half of my possessions I'm going to give to the poor. And if I've defrauded anybody of anything, which I have, I'm going to pay back to them four times the amount that I took. And then Jesus responds with these words after hearing that declaration from Zacchaeus. In, in, in Zacchaeus' repentance, Jesus says this. This is what they were listening to. Let's keep this in mind. And Jesus said to him, today salvation has come to this house, this oikos, since he also is a son of Abraham. Verse 10, for the son of man came to seek and to save the lost. And as they heard these things, he proceeded to tell a parable. What did they just hear? The Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. What is that? That's a mission statement. That's a purpose statement from the lips of Jesus. He is telling what his business has been on earth and will continue to be. The Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. And this is the key that unlocks the whole thing for us. So if it's Jesus' business on earth to seek and save the lost, and if he goes away and entrusts his business with his followers, his servants, what will his followers and servants be doing? Seeking and saving the lost, right? This is a major clue to the significance and meaning of the minas in this parable. So what do they represent? Here's option number three. We've all been given opportunity 
to seek and save the lost. Opportunity to invest the gospel into the lives of the people around us. This is the business of Jesus, and if we are entrusted with the family business, with the business of the master, while he's away, we too will be multiplying the impact of the gospel by investing it into the lives of others around us, telling others around the, about the hope to be found in Jesus, seeking and saving those who are looking for love in all the wrong places. We found it. It's in Jesus. That's where hope is found. That's where eternal life is found. And we get to share it. And this is why right before Jesus ascended into heaven after his resurrection, he said this to his disciples. Acts 1.8. Go ahead and read this out loud with me. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Jesus entrusts the gospel to his first disciple. He hands them the car keys, so to speak. He's gone, and they're on. Okay, he's gonna, they're going to be driving now. They're in the driver's seat. They're going to be continuing the work of Jesus in the world. And let's read what happens next, verse 9. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes, most likely angels, and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who is taken up from you into heaven will come, second advent, in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. So the angels announce his second advent, but for now, he's gone and they're on. As they, and and these, these original disciples were faithful to what was entrusted to them. They were faithful with their mina. How do we know? Well, you could read the book of Acts and see it. As the gospel spreads from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria and then the uttermost parts of the world, by the end of Acts, it's gone all the way to Rome, and all roads lead to Rome. How else do we know the disciples were faithful? Well, look around you. Look around you. Look at the person next to you. You're here having received a message of good news. Now, some of you might be here just kicking the tires on faith and you're checking this thing out, and that's great, and we're super glad you're here, but most people are here because they have seen the beauty of Jesus, accepted him as Savior, accepted him as Lord over their lives, accepted him as King, and are looking forward to the day when he will return. And we meet here together and encourage each other in this broken world while we wait for that day. But if you look around you, you see proof that the disciples were faithful with their mina because they told somebody, about the gospel, who then told somebody about the gospel, who then told somebody else about the gospel, and the gospel is multiplied into the lives of others. This is what happens when I go off my notes, I get lost. How do we apply this to our lives? What are the takeaways? What are the takeaways for us? Takeaway number one, the gospel that has come to us is meant to flow through us. The gospel that has come to us is meant to flow through us. My friends, we are not meant to be gospel containers. 
but rather gospel conduits. You've heard me say those phrases over and over and over again. You know why I say them over and over again? Because they're important. Because I want to see people come to Christ through our influence in this city and beyond. I want to see people baptized as they come to realize the hope that's found in Jesus and identify their lives with him. We're on a mission together, my friends. We don't come to church. We are the church. We're the hands and feet of Jesus in our schools, in our communities, in our neighborhoods, where we live, work, learn, and play. We shouldn't keep the gospel hidden. Wrap it up in a handkerchief as if it's just ours and ours alone to cherish and keep for safekeeping. No, my friends, our salvation is not an end in itself. It's a means to an end of bringing glory to God by bringing others to him. Jesus has called us to be fishers of men, not keepers of the aquarium. And Zacchaeus understood this. Just look at his response earlier in Luke chapter 19. You can look it up later. When he realized that Jesus loved him, a sinner, a tax collector, an outcast, what did he do? (laughs) When he tasted of the grace of God, that same grace... And love began to flow through him to his tax jurisdiction, to the poor in his community. Look now, I give half of my possessions to the poor, he says. And those people that I've defrauded, I'm going to give them back four times the amount that I took. And you better believe that when Zacchaeus showed up and handed them a fistful of money, they asked him a question. What has gotten into you? (laughs) What's up with this? This is not the Zacchaeus I know. And what would he have opportunity to say? Jesus has gotten into me. And I've gotten into Jesus. He's shown me his love. And I want to be a reflection and a conduit of that same grace, of that same love. Let me tell you about him. And this is why Jesus says what he says in verse 9. Today salvation has come to what? This oikos means sphere of influence. Sometimes it's translated house or household, but it's really a better translation is sphere of influence. Today, salvation has come to this sphere of influence because this man too is a son of Abraham. Jesus had in mind the people that Zacchaeus was going to impact with the gospel when he said that. The gospel that came to Zacchaeus was now going to flow through Zacchaeus. So takeaway number two. First, the gospel that has come to us is meant to flow through us. Secondly, say this out loud. Faithfulness is the basis of fruitfulness. The servants who had fruit to show when the master returned were the ones who had been faithful with their opportunity to invest. And you and I have been given opportunity to invest the gospel in the lives of people around us. And you might make an excuse and say, well, Mark, I don't feel quite adequate for that. And I'll say back to you, good. (laughs) That's okay. That means Jesus has you right where he wants you because then you won't depend on your own strength and your own resources. What will you do? You'll fall on your knees and pray and you'll ask God to use you in spite of yourself. And guess what? He will. It's not your job to save people. God's already doing that. He just wants to use you as the conduit. There is so much joy in being the conduit of God's grace as somebody discovers the gospel message. 
Jesus couldn't do it by himself. He could write his name in the gospel in the sky in cloud formations, but he wants to use us so that we get to share in his joy. It's your job not to bring people to salvation, not to argue them into the kingdom with your theological T's crossed and I's dotted. Sometimes that helps, but usually it gets in the way. Some, well, not usually. Some, don't hear me wrong. Good theology is important, okay? But being actively loving people is more important. They, they, they won't care what you know until they know that you care. I've met very few people argued into the kingdom with the finer points of theology. I've met a lot of people who've been loved into putting their faith in Jesus. Theology is important. It's not, it's not the pinnacle. Love is. Jesus was full of grace and truth. John 1, 1, or not 1, 1, but it's there in John chapter 1. Full of grace and truth. And I think the order of that is important. What do we lead with? Grace and truth. We hold on tightly to both. We can't let go of one or the other, as many are in the habit of doing. We've got to hold tightly to both, but we lead with grace and with love. It's your job to be the living proof of a loving God wherever you go as a follower of Jesus. To be the kind of person that when a crisis comes in the lives of people around you, you're the first person they think of as somebody to go to for help. And crises will come in this broken world with your neighbors, with your friends, with those people in your sphere of influence, your oikos that do not know Christ. There will be crisis that comes into their life. The slats will be kicked out from underneath them. Will you be the type of person that on their speed dial that go, oh, I know this person loves me. I'm going to call them. Oftentimes, people don't come to Christ until there is a crisis. Will you be the person that's there? Takeaway number three. Opportunity squandered is opportunity lost. Did you notice that the unfaithful servant in the parable lost his opportunity for future service? The nobleman said, take his mina away from him. I tell you that to everyone who has, has what? Return on gospel investment. Will be give, more will be given. More what? More opportunity for service. But from the one who has not, no multiplication of the gospel, even what he has, opportunity to serve, will be taken away. My friends, if we don't use it, we'll lose it. If we don't arrange our lives around the gospel now, we'll lose the opportunity to serve Jesus in greater things when the kingdom comes in its fullness. As the band makes their way back to the stage, my friends, hear this. Don't be the servant that gets sidelined for eternity. Be a faithful steward of the gospel now. And you might say, well, Mark, I want to be, I want to be, but, but I don't think I have what it takes. It's my heart's desire, but I don't know how. Well, that's why you join a community of faith. Because we want to equip you here at Fellowship Nashville for that task. For being a good steward of your mina. <laughs> We've been rolling um, some discipleship groups out this, this past year, either one-on-one -on -one relationships or small groups, where we've been equipping people 
around the gospel, understanding what the gospel is, how it transforms you from the inside out, and how it's meant to flow through you to your sphere of influence. You might be sitting there saying, well, I just don't, I don't feel comfortable around the details of the gospel or how it really has transformed me or even how to share it with others. I want to encourage you, reach out to us. Let us know, hey, when discipleship groups are opening up again, I'd like to be part of one. Part of one. We'll probably relaunch them. We will relaunch them in the fall. Take a little break for the summer. We'll relaunch them in the fall. If you want to say sign up for one of those, just just email us. Say, hey, I'm interested in that when that comes online again. We would love for you to go through that and be better equipped to the, to be the living proof of a loving God where you live, work, learn, and play. Pray with me, Father. Thank you that you've chosen to use us to do your work in the world. Thank you that you've entrusted your business to us so that we can share in your joy of seeing men, women, boys, and girls put their faith in you and find eternal hope and life that truly is life. So, Father, as we, the church, go from this building into our workplaces, into our neighborhoods, into our family and friend groups, Help us to carry the good news with us. Not just in our words, but even more importantly in our actions. I know we'll need to use words, Lord, but help us to really love people well, to lead with grace, to have opportunity to share truth. That's our heart. We want to be used of you. We want to share in your joy in the great adventure of your redemptive mission in this inner Advent period where we long for your second coming, the day when all things will be made new. Father, may your kingdom come. May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. May that day come soon. Amen.